Saint Francis de Sales once said, do not wish to be anything but what you are and try to be that perfectly. Welcome to the 11th episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because many of us would give anything to be holier, healthier, and happier than we are. But perhaps the best way forward is to embrace ourselves as we are and let God do the rest. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, Stephanie takes us back a couple of weeks to the reading from Ecclesiastes. As someone who currently suffers from anxiety and has struggled with depression in the past, the verse, all his days are sorrow and grief are his occupation. Even at night, his mind is not at rest. This also is vanity. Felt like a condemnation and gave me a sense of hopelessness. Do you have a more inclusive interpretation for those of us who cannot get our minds to rest? Thank you so much for tossing us in the hat, Stephanie. I actually thought deeply about this reading as well, specifically considering how I did exactly this when our son died back in 2016. Sorrow and grief were most definitely my occupation during that time. But was I succumbing to vanity? It's dreadful for me to think so. I think an important idea to consider here is the engagement of our free will. Our racing thoughts, our persistent worries, negativity, our continually replaying the events, conversations, and frustrating moments of the day over and over and over again are typically automatic. We don't want them there, but as soon as our head hits the pillow, they assault our mind without our consent. My thought here is that even at night, his mind is not at rest. This also is vanity. Would be more focused on purposefully allowing ourselves to be preoccupied with worry over worry worldly things and allowing them to run our lives, but in a way where we engage our will to allow it. Perhaps an example could be laying in bed and trying to think up a scheme to avoid getting in trouble for something we did at work, or engaging in some sort of investment business deal and being constantly worried if it's going to pay out. My firm belief is that this line from Ecclesiastes is not a condemnation of those of us suffering from depression, anxiety, and grief who are struggling to give it all over to God and find peace. At the same time, it's important to note that our ability to fall into the hands of the Father and trust Jesus is a process. God is patient. He's in no rush. We have to learn to allow ourselves to trust in him over time and through experiencing many struggles. And we shouldn't beat ourselves up when we're plagued by anxiety and depression because we're still on that journey of learning to trust in him. Let's pray for Stephanie and all of us who wish we could trust in God in the midst of our sorrow and grief. A favorite Bible of verse turned prayer uh, of Dorothy Day seems appropriate to me here. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Next, an Anonymous has a question about medication. What do you think about antidepressants in prayer? Like, how do those drugs affect spirituality? My girlfriend is going through some stuff. The first antidepressant she took made her feel emotionless. The new one she's on is making her feel happy all the time, except when she's praying. This is a really important question that I'm sure a lot of you have thought about. But first, as a marriage and family therapist, I need to say I am not an expert on medication. I have no recommendations or guidance on what meds someone should be on, what dosage, etc. The first advice I give always has to be please take your medication questions to your doctor. Um, they need to know what's going on. They need to know how to help you. So you have to tell them and take the medications as prescribed. The interplay of antidepressant medication and spirituality is a fascinating topic to think about. People taking antidepressants generally report back with four different responses. It works fairly well. They feel completely apathetic and everything, and they kind of hate that feeling. 
The, the medication maybe helps them sleep better, but otherwise they still feel depressed. Or the medication makes them feel happier and peppier, and that feels nice, but sometimes this can also lead to problems. So right off the bat, I want to say how awesome your girlfriend is for a couple of reasons. First being that she reached out for help, which shows a lot of strength. And second being that when the first medication didn't work for her, she went back and tried something else. I can't overstate how great this is. Most of us try once and then give up, and that leads to a whole lot of unnecessary suffering. Remember, doctors prescribing medication for mental health don't know which meds are going to work for you in your body. They take their best guess and try something, so the first test fails quite often. Mental health medications aren't like other medicines. You know, you get like a toe fungus and there's a med to take and it works 90% of the time. The brain is more complicated and less understood. And what works for one person doesn't work or has different results for another person with the same symptoms. But if you keep working with your doctor, you do have a good chance of eventually finding something that works. The new medication making her feel happy all the time can be a good thing, but I wonder if time spent in prayer feeling not so good is due to the fact that her medicine gives her energy, which sometimes people describe as anxious energy inside of your body. You feel like you have to do something. And sitting down in silence and praying can feel like the opposite of what you want to do. You want to do something. And while we intellectually know that prayer is powerful and does something, when you're filled with happiness and energy and a kind of anxiety that wants to get out, prayer can be torture in the same way that being told to sit down and read a book would be torture. All that to say she's probably experiencing a normal reaction, that it might wear off after a while on the meds, and that she should keep her doctor in the know about every change she's experiencing so that they can keep an eye on her and respond appropriately. Just to toss this out there, and I'm not saying this has anything to do with your girlfriend, it's worth noting here that individuals suffering from bipolar disorder oftentimes come in for treatment when they're feeling depressed. They get prescribed an antidepressant and then get kind of flung into an elevated or manic mood. And this is one reason why it's so important for everyone to keep an eye on their loved ones when something like this happens so that they can keep the doctor posted. God bless you and your girlfriend, man. Thank you for walking with her on this journey, and I'll be praying for you both. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Requests, and today I'm here to introduce you to Blessed Benedict Daswa. Born in 1946, Samuel Daswa was a teacher and principal from South Africa. He was a part of the Lemba tribe, one that followed Jewish rituals and laws, and had three younger brothers and one sister. After his father's accidental death, it fell to him to enter the workforce at a young age and provide for the family. He was eventually exposed to Catholicism when meeting a friend in Johannesburg, and after two years of learning about the faith, he was baptized and took the name Benedict, thanks to being inspired by the Saint Benedict. Daswa was a highly respected individual in his local community and became known for his honesty, truthfulness, and integrity. He was even known to fetch students who decided to skip school. Daswa later helped to build the first church in the area and eventually became the principal of the school where he taught. He got married, had eight children, and then in 18, or sorry, 1989 and 1990, his village became overwhelmed by large storms. The elders in the tribe decided to have all residents pay a tax to fund a type of witchcraft magic approach to the storms, but Daswell refused, noting the storms were just a natural phenomenon. 
One month after that, returning home from getting treatment for his niece's poor health, he was attacked by a mob who blamed him and his Catholic faith for continuing uh, for the continuing weather problems. After being stoned, he escaped to a nearby home, but the woman who lived there told the mob he was there, and they returned and killed him for his faith in Christ and his refusal to go along with the ideas of witchcraft and magic as an answer to the storms. His last words were, God, into your hands, receive my spirit. Many, as a, many of us have probably never heard of Benedict Daswa, but his story, his love of his community, and his faith in Christ to the very end inspires me and hopefully inspires you as well to always trust in Christ no matter what type of storms may come our way. We like to close this part of the podcast out with a prayer, so let's go. O oh, blessed Trinity, you filled the heart of Benedict Daswa with great love and zeal for building up your kingdom. You chose him and gave him courage and strength to stand up for his faith without fear and to bear witness to it even unto death. Loving God, like him, may we always proclaim the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by the witness of our life. Keep us away from all deeds of darkness. Protect us from evil spirits and the powers of evil. Make us true apostles of life in our families and in society. Father, through blessed Benedict Daswa's intercession, and if it accords with your will, grant us this grace which we now ask of you, that everyone who listens to this podcast might feel your peace in a particular way this very day. May we always draw strength and courage from the life of your servant, Benedict Daswa, whom those in South Africa venerate as their intercessor and model of holiness. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Teresa kicks us off, quote, I was wondering if you could address general anxiety, social anxiety, and panic attacks. It would be interesting to hear since I know a lot of people that struggle with it. Thank you, Teresa. I'd be more than happy to. First, some basic definitions for those interested. Generalized anxiety disorder is characterized by persistent and excessive worry about a number of different things. People with GAD may anticipate disaster and or be overly concerned about money, health, family, work, and other issues. Social anxiety, also called social phobia, is intense anxiety or fear of being judged, negatively evaluated, or rejected in a social or performance situation. People with social anxiety disorder may worry about acting or appearing visibly anxious, like blushing, stumbling over words, or being viewed as stupid, awkward, or boring. And as a result, they often avoid social or performance situations. And when a situation cannot be avoided, they experience significant anxiety and distress. Lastly, panic attacks are the abrupt onset of intense fear or discomfort that reaches a peak within minutes and includes at least four of the following symptoms. All right, here we go. Palpitations or pounding heart, accelerated heart rate, sweating, trembling or shaking, sensations of shortness of breath or smothering, feelings of choking, chest pain or discomfort, nausea or abdominal distress, feeling dizzy, lightheaded, faint, chills or heat sensations, Paresthesia, which is a numbness or tingling sensation. Derealization, you know, feelings of unreality or depersonalization, being detached from oneself. Fear of losing control or going crazy or a fear of dying. So there's that. Now, if it's okay with you, I'd like to zero in on something specific about these diagnoses. The fact that anxiety is real 
overwhelming and that we can't just stop being anxious. Sadly, I see a very prevalent idea that anxiety isn't as bad as those suffering make it out to be. People say things like, well, I've been worried before, but I've never had to go to the emergency room over it. Give me a break. And I think this is such a dangerous line of thinking for those of us suffering from anxiety to be confronted with. I mean, we're already doing this to ourselves. You know, what's wrong with me? Nothing bad is happening right now. Why can't I just get over this? And that's bad enough. We don't need other people feeding that kind of self-loathing. Anyone out there who hasn't experienced a panic attack before needs to realize when someone is having a panic attack, they literally feel like they are going to die. It's that serious. It's beyond just being able to get over it and not be worried. Remember, suffering from a diagnosable experience of anxiety and simply being worried about things in life are two completely different experiences. The first being something so serious that it impairs our ability to function, to leave the house, to interact with people, to sleep, to take care of our children. It's quite serious and it needs to be taken that way. While there are medications that can intervene when intense anxiety and panic set in, these medications are most typically prescribed temporarily and the thrust of learning how to cope with anxiety lies in the hard work of therapy. Learning what precedes an attack of anxiety, the thoughts, the physical feelings inside, or an approaching event or task that terrifies us. Once we can identify the precursor, we have to learn how to immediately jump into coping skills that work. Deep breathing, prayer, distraction, going on a walk to focus our mind on something else, like trying to find the colors of the rainbow in order as they occur in nature. I know it sounds weird, but it works. We also have to recognize that once we pass from that precursor into a full-blown anxiety or panic attack, the only thing that makes it pass is time sitting with the panic and anxiety until it naturally goes down because our body can't simply stay at that heightened state forever. So if you're feeling crippled by anxiety, reach out for help. Learn the skills you need to fight it off before it crosses into an attack and go forward with our prayers. Next up, Anonymous checks in with this one. Can you talk about the line between normal forgetfulness in older adults and the early signs of dementia? Like, uh, not there's definitely a problem, but like the early signs that there may be a problem, and when do you go get help for your parents? This is such an awesome question. I really appreciate you tossing it my way. I worked with older adults in a previous mental health position I had, and I have to say, it was one of the most rewarding assignments of my career. We have so much to learn from the older generations, and it was such a blessing to walk with those who at this point in their lives had no one else to walk alongside them. Many of us have parents who are in, our, in their 60s, 70s, 80s, or beyond, and many of us have probably seen our parents forget something they previously remembered, seem to lack memory of events that had been planned or scheduled, or at the very least experienced that, what's that guy's name again? Hang on, it'll come to me. And most of us have probably wondered, is this normal, or are they on their way to dementia? Almost 40% of people over the age of 65 experience some form of memory loss. When there's no underlying medical condition causing this memory loss, it is considered a part of the normal aging process. This would include things like not being able to remember details or a, of a conversation or event that took place over a year ago, not being able to remember the name of an acquaintance, occasionally having difficulty finding words. Meanwhile, early signs of brain diseases like Alzheimer's and other dementias are different and might include things like not being able to recall details of recent events or conversations, not recognizing or knowing the names of family members, frequent pauses and substitutions when trying to find words, like searching for a different way to describe something because the word they're looking for escapes them. Or if you're worried about the memory of a loved one, but they aren't aware of any problem. 
There are a few diagnostic tools you can find online to get you started to see if your loved one may be suffering from dementia. The MOCA and the clock tests are two that I find really helpful. Although it's worth noting that these tests and their interpretation would best be left to professionals in the field, but you can always get your hands on them and see what they're like, maybe see how well you'd do. Lastly, on this topic, it's really important to start by getting your loved one a physical exam before you jump ahead into being worried about dementia or late onset mental illness. Just one example, a urinary tract infection in older folks can lead to confusion, acting bizarre, and even psychosis. Seriously, so physical health checkout first, you know. Finally, we've got Zoe checking in, wanting to know how to set boundaries with loved ones who are seriously mentally ill and as a result abusive. She says, we've had to cut an important person out of our life and never know if we are dealing with it correctly. We told her if she gets treatment, she's welcome back. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you know what's coming. A prayer for Zoe, her loved one, and everyone who has the difficult task of trying to set boundaries, know how to do it, and who wants so much for their loved one to get the help they need so they can welcome them back. Ready? Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. You hear me talk quite a bit on this podcast about the importance of walking with those suffering from mental illness, but I always try to balance that with the very real truth that we all have to look after our own mental health as well. When we're helping someone, we have to examine the impact it's having on our health and that of our family and make decisions around how best to support others with that in mind. When I was a young therapist, before I got married or had kids, I often found myself giving this advice. If you want your adult child to finally seek the mental health care they need, set boundaries, Stop giving them money, kick them out of the house, whatever it takes. I know this sounds harsh, but it's a very prevalent piece of advice handed out to families trying to convince loved ones to seek care. And I should point out here, I'm speaking with uh, people suffering from serious and severe mental health issues, ones that are like leading to people going to the psychiatric hospital. After I had children, however, I couldn't imagine giving someone that advice. I felt like no matter what was going on with my kids, drugs, mental illness, without getting help, and anything in between, I would never kick them out. So, I mean, the truth of what's best probably lies somewhere in the middle, right? The need to set boundaries and hold them in the hopes of encouraging someone to get mental health treatment is tricky. And I think probably all of us have had, who have had to do this feel like Zoe. Are we doing the right thing? But here's the key, Zoe, to me knowing that you're doing the right thing. You've decided you have to set boundaries to keep yourself and your family healthy. And you've told your loved one that once they're feeling better and getting help, you will be happy to resume your relationship with them. This is so beautiful because it's not shutting the door on your loved one forever, but rather saying, we want to be with you, but we need it to be in a way that's healthy for all of us. It's really a beautiful and caring way of encouraging this person to get help. And I'll be praying for you, Zoe. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations. If you'd like me to address them in the future, I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dimphia.